Yeah, it's, uh, it's good to be with you guys here. I'm glad that you guys got here safe. I know it was nice and rainy, um, so really good to see you guys. Uh, this, the guys are passing out some handouts for you guys, and uh, part of the reason why we're doing handouts tonight, and tonight's going to be a little bit different. Uh, the reason why we're doing handouts is just because uh, when, I, when I think about the topic of dispensationalism, it's kind of a hard topic to teach, and I figured that more likely than not, you're probably going to need as many helps as possible. And it was a good thing that I printed out these handouts because, well, we don't really have any slides. So, um, yeah, just refer to your notes, and if you need a pen, feel free to get up and grab one. Um, so we're continuing our march through SFBC's doctrinal statement this evening. And um, as we examine the doctrines that the, whole, that the church holds as true, we come across this word, this scary word, this big, long, scary word, dispensationalism. How many of you, by show of hands, have at least heard of the word dispensationalism before tonight? Hands? Okay. Good number of you. Now, um, of those of you who raised your hands, how many of you actually know what the doctrine teaches? Okay. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you for indulging me on that. Um, as you as you saw, especially if you sat in the back, um, the topic of dispensationalism is one that people are at least familiar with the name, but they don't really know what it teaches. So our goal tonight is to explore the doctrine set forth in dispensationalism to the glory of God, that we can have a greater grasp as to what He's doing in human history. And uh, so that we can see how we ought to respond to others who may hold different views and also see how this doctrine affects our lives. But before we do that, let's open up in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, as we look at the doctrine of dispensationalism, as we consider the theme of the scriptures and, and you as king, we come to this doctrine ready to learn, ready to hear, to hear how you have stepped into human history and have advanced your plan. And as we look at that, we pray that, Lord, you would help us to have a greater understanding of who you are and what you're doing and allow for us to be able to respond as a result of that. So, Father, we pray that you would be with us this evening. We need your help for sure because uh, this can be a little of a dense topic for a Friday night. But we pray that, Lord, you would just give us help and that you would ultimately glorify yourself. It's in your sons that we pray. Amen. Okay, so you notice that we don't have a, a particular Bible passage that we're building off of tonight, and that's kind of on purpose. Um, this is a hard subject, and we're going to be bouncing around through a lot of scriptures. Um, and tonight's going to be a little different. It's, um, it's just going to be a little different. It's kind of a nerdy topic, but it's, believe me, it's relevant to you. Uh, SFBC's doctrinal statement, as you can see at the top of your handout, says this. We believe in the dispensational approach to interpreting the scriptures, specifically that ethnic Israel and the church remain distinct. Man's sin and God's remedy for it have been progressively revealed in several dispensations, and yet the scriptures present one unified plan of salvation from sin. We recognize and teach the covenants as well, along with their significance in the revealed plan of God to save by grace a people for himself. Now, as you read that, as you hear that, 
definition or the, the doctrinal statement of SFBC regarding dispensationalism, you'll notice that our doctrinal statement does not define the word dispensationalism, nor does it define the word dispensational. And that is part of the frustrating thing about studying dispensationalism. If you Google it on your phones, you might see something, but it's still not helpful ultimately. Right? It's kind of like we, we know from an early age that you can't define a word using the word, right? You can't, but that's what they do. Uh, and it, I'm, not, I'm not blaming the founders of our church for that. That's what all dispensationalists do. It's really frustrating. Um, but hopefully, as we study tonight, I can help clear up some of these things and shed some more light on this doctrine so you understand why it's in our doctrinal statement and what we're supposed to do with that. Now, before we begin, I want to make a couple notes. Tonight should only be seen as an overview or introduction to the topic of dispensationalism. There is so much that I, like, that I need to tell you, but that I can't tell you because we would be here till next week. Um, so we just don't have enough time to look at dispensationalism as a whole or even compare it to the other theological systems. And I'm just going to read it. I'm just going to tell you what some of those things are so that you kind of get the sense of, like, why I cannot tell you all these things tonight. Okay, so we have other theological systems such as covenant theology, new covenant, new covenant theology, or there's this even newer system called progressive covenantalism. And that's just the covenantal side of it. If you want to look at the dispensational side of it, you have, uh, you have three schools of thought. You have classic dispensationalism, revised slash modified dispensationalism, and progressive dispensationalism. So you have six different systems all saying something rather similar, trying to understand how we look at God's plan for all of mankind in terms of the church and for the end times. Six different systems, not enough time. So therefore, tonight is only an introduction. So if you're interested in learning more about this topic after tonight, you can talk to me, you can email me, we can see how many people are interested in learning about this and, I don't know, have a short class on it. Um, We'll see. Second note, the dispensationalism that I am humbly trying to teach you tonight, I am not an expert, okay, but I'm humbly trying to teach you tonight, is called progressive dispensationalism, okay, progressive dispensationalism. And one, one of the things that I realized as I was studying for this message to, uh, tonight is that this dispensationalism could actually be slightly different than the dispensationalism that this church was founded on back in 1964, um, because a lot has changed in 55 years. This is our 55th year, if you didn't know that. I didn't know that until I had to do the math this uh, uh, today. So um, we were founded in 1964, and that's right in the middle of what is known as revised or modif- uh, modified dispensationalism. Right? And, um, and as biblical scholars worked harder to come to a more precise understanding of the scriptures, this gave way to progressive dispensationalism. And we're going to talk about the distinctions later. Now, the point of all of this is, uh, is that what I'm teaching you this evening might be slightly different from those who know, know what dispensationalism is in the church, who are a little older. It might be a little bit different from what they're saying, but that's okay. Okay, that is okay. As we gain a deeper understanding of scripture and we work hard to understand theology, we will have to make corrections and adjustments all the time. That's why you have six different 
views on how we are supposed to understand the theology that is present in the Bible. Now, due to the update on dispensationalism, along with the presence of other systems of theology, theological understanding, I want to urge all of us, myself included, probably first and foremost, since I am preaching it, teaching it, is to be humble and gracious when it comes to our understanding of dispensationalism. Dispensationalism is a theological system. It's a way that we have gathered and organized the theology that is found in the scriptures into one place so that it can be easily studied and so that we can try and make connections. This is, this is exactly what we do with systematic theology. We take the doctrines that are found in the scriptures and we try and organize it and categorize it so that we can understand it better. Now, that's what systematic theology does, and this is pretty much what, um, what dispensationalism does as well. Dispensationalism, along with covenant theology, new covenant theology, and the works, are a part of what we would consider biblical theology. It's the way that God has revealed himself and his plans for humanity throughout human history. So from beginning to end, as it unfolds from Genesis all the way to Revelation, that's the development of biblical theology. If you want to think, this is an imperfect Illustration, but if you want to think about it this way, it's kind of like if you are trying to see the whole of the inside of a banana. You start peeling it, right, and you peel and peel and peel and peel and peel until you get to the very end and you peel it all off, and then finally you see the entire white of the banana, right? That's kind of what progressive um, dispensationalism is. That's kind of what biblical theology is. It's trying to understand the entire system as a whole, how it unfolded, how it unveiled itself. If you want to think of it as an onion, you can think of it as an onion. It deals primarily, and dispensationalism primarily deals with the doctrine of the church and end times. So ecclesiology and eschatology, if you want the official names. Now, the bigger point is this. Good and godly men and women whom we call friends have different opinions on how God has operated throughout human history. And so since dispensationalism and its rival systems are trying to understand how God's plan has unfolded and how it impacts our view of heaven and earth, this is a secondary issue. Okay, this is a secondary issue. Salvation from sin through grace by faith in Jesus Christ is not, and I repeat, is not threatened. So if someone else has a different viewpoint, they are not heretical. So we can show love and grace towards those who do not agree with us. Because we have a lot to cover tonight, I am technically not preaching as much as I am lecturing. Now, to borrow my favorite professor's favorite term, it's a made-up term, you can, you can kind of expect this to be a lecture sermon or a lermon, if you will. So um, I'll be inviting for some of your participation, but if you don't want to participate with me because you're tired or you don't want your voice in the recording, that's okay. Right, you can leave me up here in silence, in awkward silence, because I'm used to it. Um, all right, so again, tonight's an overview. And uh, if you want to go through this in more depth, we'll have to talk about that. But we're going to look at three aspects of dispensationalism, okay? Three aspects of dispensationalism. And the first thing that we're going to look at tonight is the foundation of dispensationalism, okay? The foundation of dispensationalism. Now, while we could jump straight to the main beliefs of dispensationalism, I wanted to focus on a singular, arguably the most important foundation of the doctrine of dispensationalism, which is hermeneutics. Hermeneutics. Dispensationalism is hermeneutics-driven. Now, for those of you who are familiar with my style of teaching and you've been through this idea of hermeneutics 
with me before, I apologize for the repetition. But when it comes to the doctrines where we may disagree with others, it's important for us to remember the source that we appeal to as we hold our convictions. So that leads us to the question, what are hermeneutics? Any thoughts? Any guesses? What are hermeneutics? The science of interpretation. That is excellent. That's a good one. Any other thoughts? Any other? Uh, oh, you want credit for it now? <laughs> any other thoughts? Any other, uh, any other suggestions as to what hermeneutics are? The science of interpretation is what we got. Yes? Thank you. So I don't even remember all that you just said to me. I can't repeat it back. But basically, it is a branch of interpretation and, um, and yeah, how we understand and interpret the Bible. Thank you, Janet. I appreciate that. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. All right, so put simply, put very, very simply, hermeneutics are the methods and rules by which we understand how to interpret the Bible. Okay, they're the methods and rules by which we understand how to interpret the Bible. So both those answers were correct. Um, now, I do want to note um, that all theological systems, all theological positions, denominations, and whatnot are typically a result of people trying to be faithful to Scripture. Most people who are Christians, even people who consider themselves Christians but are, are actually cult members, they're all trying the best that they can, the best that they know how, to be faithful to Scripture. So that's one thing that we have to understand, is that dispensationalists are not the only people who are trying to be faithful to Scripture. Everyone's trying to be faithful to Scripture. And so that's why I'm saying we have to be kind and gracious towards other people in, in terms of the understanding of this thing. Because, um, yeah, we, we're going to have differences in opinions. We're going to have different viewpoints. Now, I'm not saying, however, that if you don't have the same viewpoint, uh, the same understanding of hermeneutics that I do, that this church does, uh, that, you are, that you are equal to a cult member. I'm not saying that, okay? Um, I'm not saying that. But the reason why I'm saying this is because we have to be humble and gracious, okay? When we discuss theological systems and the hermeneutics that drive them, because more often than not, People who have these different theological beliefs are indeed trying their very hardest to be faithful to what they understand Scripture to say. This does not mean that they are therefore right and cannot be wrong, but it informs our disposition towards them. Okay, so they're not our enemies, even if they don't agree with us, they don't agree with our, our system interpretation. Okay, we have to be gracious, humble, and, we want, and be open to dialogue with them as well, because we want to determine what God has actually said. Now, some have tried to argue that the rules of biblical interpretation are a man-made concept, that we are imposing our own view as to how to understand the scriptures, how to study the scriptures, especially when we say it is the science of interpretation. They say that we are trying to impose a man-made system onto the Bible. What I would argue what I would propose to you is that when God gave us the scriptures, when he gave us his word, he also revealed how he desires his word to be understood within the scriptures. 
The Bible came to us with the rules of interpretation included. Remember those old electronic toys that we used to get when we were younger? And, you know, you'd watch the commercials on TV, and then they would tell you in, like, really quick, in a really quick voice, oh, and batteries are included, right? Or batteries not included. Right? You remember that? In a sense, that's what the Bible is. The Bible comes with hermeneutics included. They are included within the scriptures. We just need to recognize what those rules and principles are. So, what is the method of interpretation that dispensationalism hangs on? What is the approach that the pastors and teachers of this church use when we study the Bible? Well, it is the literal, historical, grammatical method of interpretation. I'm not going to repeat that because it's in your notes. Okay, so let's do a quick review of what we mean. When we talk about literal, the literal aspect of interpretation, we are not talking about a wooden, single-minded devotion to interpreting the scriptures in a literal way. Okay, we do allow for metaphor, simile, and all those other um, uh, different parts of, uh, of speech. As Pastor Henry likes to put it, when the plain sense of the, t- of the text makes sense, you don't need to look for another sense. He probably says it a little more concise than that, but the concept is there. Okay? If, the sense make, I mean, if the text makes sense in its plain reading, you don't need to look for another sense. This, of course, does, this of course um, means that you know, there is room for simile, there is room for metaphor, imagery, and other types of things. But if we read the text and it makes sense in its context, we don't need to look for a spiritual or deeper sense by which to understand the text unless there is a clear relationship with another text in scripture okay so if there's if there is no analogy don't force it on the text okay if there's no analogy so for instance um for instance when when you look at when when you look at sorry i'm trying to think of a, a good good example um oh yeah so when we talk about when we talk about Jonah and his three days that he's in the, wh- in the whale, right? three days in the deep in the whale, and then Jesus says, I tell you, a greater sign than Jonah is here. That is a clear connection. Yes? That is a clear connection. Jesus specifically is referring back to Jonah. And so when he says, I'm going to give you a sign like Jonah, a greater sign than Jonah, he is referring to his own death three days. If you wondered why that was three days, that's why it's three days, because, um, yeah, because Jesus is the greater Jonah. Anyway, um, yeah, that's a connection that Jesus himself makes. So you can rightly make that connection. But if the connection's not there, if you're trying to say something, else, something exists when it doesn't exist, or there's no clear connection to it, you cannot use that as a type. You cannot use that as, uh, as an example. You can't use allegory when there is no allegory. Right, um, yeah, you can't allegorically a- allegorically look at the scriptures unless it clearly says, unless the biblical author clearly tells you, and this is allegory. If it's not there, you can't put it there. Okay, so if the plain sense makes sense, you don't need to look for another sense. Historical. Okay, when we talk about historical, what is the historical context of the book? What is going on at the time of writing? If you wonder why every time we start a new book, we're t- we tell you the date that it was was uh it was written in and who it was written to this is the reason why because the meaning of the text is locked into the words and the history and the historical setting 
How does the historical situation in which the book is written provide us with a framework to understand authorial intent and his purpose for that particular audience? Hebrews 4.12 reminds us that God's word is living and active. But this means, this doesn't mean that the Bible is a living document and that it transforms its meaning throughout time. Okay? That's what people, that's what some people are saying that our constitution is, that it's a living document and that it changes its meanings and, uh, and uh, it applies to different situations as time progresses. That's what they say about the constitution. But what I would argue is that it is locked in in its historical context. There are things that our forefathers wrote. There are things that our, that our lawmakers wrote that is locked into their time period, so they're not meaning something else. And the same thing with the scriptures. The scriptures are locked into their historical setting. So when we look at what the words of scripture says, the meaning is fixed. And so when we say that the Bible is living and active, what we're saying is that the, the Bible has power throughout all ages in that its principles transcend time so that it's still relevant even when applied to future audiences. That's why, that's why, brothers and sisters, we say that you don't ever have to make the Bible relevant to anybody. It always is. It always is because God's word is timeless. God's word is timeless. The principles, the meanings that he has locked into these words on the page, they are given in their historical context for a reason so that we can understand, we can climb into the author's mind, figure out their intent, and understand their meaning. Right? If you were to write a love letter to somebody, to a specific person, and it doesn't work out, you cannot take that letter and take it to the next person you're interested in and say, here, this is what it means. This is my, these are my feelings to you. You could do that in a sense, but the meaning doesn't apply, right? It's not to the same person, right? They're going to tell you, what? That's not my name, <laughs> right? So there is something locked into what we write. There's always something locked into what we write. So anyway, um, when we look at the scriptures, and we, we talk about how it's historical. That's what we're talking about. There is one singular meaning. There is one singular truth that is found in all of Scripture. However, each truth, each, there's, even though there's only one proper interpretation, there are multiple applications, okay? There's one right interpretation of the text. You cannot have two different right interpretations of the text. There's only one right interpretation of the text, but it can have multiple applications to different people. Right? That's why it's principle. The principles are the things that apply. Now, grammatical. Sorry, I'm going to try and speed up a little bit. Grammatical. Many of us are weak in grammar due to the fact that the philosophy of language acquisition has shifted from learning the mechanics of language to just speaking. Okay, but the mechanics of language are helpful in helping us understand the author's intent. We unconsciously structure our spoken language according to the rules of grammar so that what we say makes sense. If someone came up to you and they talked like Yoda to you for the entire conversation, you would not pick up their meaning as easily as if they just used proper syntax, yeah? Because then you have to figure out, wait, what verb is governing this and what? Okay, anyway. Um, common example, okay, um, yeah, I mean, we can still talk, and a lot of our miscommunication is due to semantics, 
But a failure to write and speak properly can lead to a misprioritization of, misprioritization of what was meant. Common example. Turn with me to Matthew 28. You guys know this. You've probably heard this a million times already, but I'm going to do it anyway. Matthew 28. What verse am I going to? Those of you who know, what verse am I going to? Verse 19. We're going to verse 19, okay? Verse 19 to 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What is the main verb there? What is the main verb? What do you think the main verb is? The main verb is make disciples, right. But, but we tend to look at verse 19, and the first word that we see is go, and we've heard it preached. Go is the command. Therefore, every single one of you as believers, your priority as a Christian is to go. Go on missions. Go evangelize. That's how we preach it, and it preaches well, doesn't it? Go, go, go. But that's not the main verb. The main verb is, as uh, was said, is make disciples. And so the idea is making disciples, um, sorry, the idea of the verb is you go, I'm sorry, ah, see, it's stuck in my head. You make disciples, right, that's the command, you make disciples as you are going, and then as you are going, as you are baptizing, and as you are teaching them all uh, to observe all that I have commanded you, that is the idea, that is the command. The only command there is make disciples, right? But if you misprioritize, if you misprioritize the words, if you don't understand what the main verb is, you're going to focus more on the go rather than on the make disciples. And that would be tragic because it leads people to think, and it eventually has led to people thinking, I don't need missions training, I don't need to understand how to evangelize to a particular people in a particular culture. I don't need to know the language of the people that I'm going to minister to. I see the word go, therefore I go. That's the danger of not paying attention to grammar. Grammar is important. And, you, and the reason why it's important also, not only can you accidentally misprioritize what, you, uh, what is not found in the scriptures, but you can make the scriptures, particularly in this case, Jesus, say something that he didn't say or mean something that he didn't mean. That should scare you. It scares me. Okay, so the literal historical grammatical method of interpretation provides us with guardrails, okay, guardrails for the proper interpretation of the text. However, when we talk about the other theological systems that try and understand God's salvation plan, they might give some credence to some principles or some aspects of the little historical grammatical method of interpretation, but their hermeneutic is a little different, and it's identified as the Christocentric hermeneutic. Christocentric gives you, is exactly what it sounds like, Christ-centered, okay? Christ-centered. It aims to be Christ-centered in its inter interpretation of Scripture. All Scriptures are interpreted in light of Christ whether it be directly, typologically, or reparatory. Now, while that sounds good, it does sound good, right? We do want to be Christ-centered. Yes? Yes? 
We do want to be Christ-centered. It sounds good because we know that everything should be about Jesus. But the application of this hermeneutic can have some severe consequences if all scriptures are about Christ. And that's the idea behind that, that. And I'm not trying to be unfair, but that is the that is the trajectory of the Christocentric hermeneutic. If you want to know more about the Christocentric hermeneutic, there is an entire shepherds conference devoted to that particular issue. Um, and you can go look that up. You can download those things for free. Um, I would argue that every single text can eventually get you to Jesus. Okay, every single text can eventually get you to Jesus. Nerds call that Christotelic. Okay, but not every single text is about Jesus. That's Christocentric. And the idea, and this is a common example used, right, but the, the uh, most common example of a Christocentric interpretation of a text is that the story of David and Goliath is not about God being with David, empowering David to, be, uh, to take on Goliath, to stand for his honor, and to be the man that God, wants him, that, that God wanted to raise up to be the king of Israel. Instead, the greater application, the greater idea of David and Goliath, is that Jesus will be with you. He'll strengthen you to help you deal with the Goliaths in your life. That preaches, doesn't it? It's like, whoa, that sounds good. But that's not the point of the text. Right? And what I'm saying is that not every single text is always about Christ. There are, some, there are some texts that are not about Christ, and you can't stick them where he's not. Okay? So you have to be mindful of that. You have to be careful of that. Now, that comes... Um, that comes into play when, it, when we think about what is the relationship? How do we understand the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament? Does the Old Testament set the foundation for the New Testament and the New Testament progresses revelation by building off that foundation? Or does the New Testament have priority over the Old Testament because it's the final revelation of God, therefore allowing for us to interpret the Old Testament interpret Old Testament realities in light of what is now revealed or now known in the New Testament. And that's something that we have to wrestle with because the Christocentric hermeneutic says that the New Testament has priority over the Old Testament in interpretation, that the New Testament governs our understanding of the Old Testament. The literal the literal historical grammatical hermeneutic says that the Old Testament informs the new. And the new builds off those principles and sometimes reveals things that the old didn't reveal, but it's still building off of those principles. Right? And so um, there, there is a difference, right? The difference seems subtle, but it has a monumental impact on how we understand God's promises to us. Should we expect literal fulfillment of God's promises or is there a spiritual fulfillment? Is heaven a, and this is something that I'll kind of refer to later, but is heaven actually a literal place or is it a spiritual place? Methodology matters when it comes to what we expect and what we hope. Now, before we move on, I want to remind you that those who have a right understanding of the gospel, are not dispensationalists, and hold to a Christocentric hermeneutic, are not our enemies. Okay, they are not our enemies. 
nor are they heretics. They are our brothers and sisters in Christ who are trying to honor scripture and understand its true meaning as well. Their method of interpretation leads to disagreement at times on the interpretation of text. And sometimes it does have significant implications on biblical salvation, but 95 to 99% of the time, I just made that up, we can consider them right in line with us. Okay, it's, the differences are very slim, but it is really, really important. Okay, So we have to tread carefully. We have to tread humbly when it comes to how we look at Scripture. And we always have to look at Scripture. We have to be faithful Bereans. We can't... We can't um, we can't look at the scriptures with our theological disposition or heroes informing our convictions and being the things that push us to grab onto the convictions that we have, but we really need to develop our convictions based off of the scriptures. Okay, so everything that I'm saying right now, I, I want you to think about it. I want you to challenge it. I want you to fight back. And if you, if you believe what I'm saying, that's fine. You don't have to fight back. But... Like, I, I want you to think about it. I want you to wrestle with it because you can't take what I say at face value. Or you have to study this for yourselves. You have to make this your own. You have to make this your own. Okay. I don't want to force my theology onto you. I don't want to force my convictions or my disposition onto you or my heroes. Some of you don't even care about my heroes. And that's okay, too. Okay. But if you... If you want to be faithful before the Lord, if you want to make sure that you are honoring him with all that you got, you need to make sure that you are studying the scriptures for yourself and that any conclusions that you come to, you can come to it because you see it in the scriptures. Okay, That's what I want you to be loyal to. I want you to be loyal to the scriptures, not to me, not to this church, not to any theological system. I want you to be loyal to the scriptures and to the Lord. Now, moving on, we begin to look at the main beliefs of dispensationalism. The first Belief of dispensationalism that we will look at comes straight out of the hermeneutics. God's kingdom plan is revealed progressively. Okay, God's kingdom plan is revealed progressively. Now, classical dispensationalists, if you're aware of the controversy between the two, they will say, they will say that dispensations are several or seven stewardship tests through which God reveals a new aspect of his plan Let's us fail, and then he says, okay, good, here's a new aspect. Here's, a, here's another, the other part of the plan. Progressive dispensationalists would say that a dispensation is not a stewardship test, but it is just a time period in which God reveals a certain aspect of his salvation plan to mankind. That's a little more biblical. We can accept that, yeah? Now, I've had people come up to me um, at Shepherd's Conference, actually, come up to me and say, hey, am I missing a page in my Bible? And I responded, well, no. He's like, well, what's this dispensationalism stuff? And I was like, oh. It is a system, okay? It's a system of theology. It's just like the word Trinity. It's not in your Bible. Okay? But it's how, we gather it to, it's how we gather the facts and we try and understand it through that position. Now, this aspect of dispensation as a time period, it's just a way that we've tried to organize it and understand it. Um, there are no tests, okay? There are no tests. God unfolds his plan in certain stages and, um, um, and, and in a time period according to his timing. Example for you guys, the way that we look at God's revelation is similar to the way that we learn math, okay? When you learn math, you first learn numbers, yes? Sounds stupid, but we do, right? We first learn numbers. Then after you learn numbers, 
What do you learn? Addition, yes. What do you learn after addition? Subtraction, right? The reverse of addition. And then multiplication, division, pre-algebra, algebra, and I don't remember the rest. Um, right? But we don't just jump into differential calculus, okay? Right? You don't learn math like that. Hey, this is not the matrix. You don't just download differential calculus and be like, boom, I am ready to take on this math class. Or you learn it progressively. The way that God unveils his salvation plan is pro progressive, just like that. He gives you a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. He just reveals it slowly but surely. And it doesn't contradict. That's the cool thing about it. Right? You want to think about it this way. You can also think about it this way. J.K. Rowling, when she wrote Harry Potter, she actually mapped out the entire storyline before she started writing. So she had books one to seven, all mapped out, all planned, and then she revealed it slowly. That's probably better than math, as an example, right? But she revealed it slowly <laughs> through seven books. Through seven books in 10 years. It's pretty crazy. But anyway, in a similar way, I'm not saying Harry's Jesus, okay? I'm not saying Harry's Jesus. But in a similar way, God reveals his plan slowly throughout throughout uh, human history, okay? So as such, we would say that God revealed his salvation plan slowly throughout human history, and he did that primarily through the covenants, okay? He did that through the covenants. Even though we say that we're dispensational, we, as progressive dispensationalists, hold to the covenants and the importance of the covenants. God pushes his plan forward through the covenants, okay? These covenants are promises that he made with select people that have significant impact on the nation of Israel and the world as a whole. He ties the fates of the nations, the fate of the world, all on Israel. Okay, I gave you a bunch of scripture passages. We're going to go crazy fast, okay? Genesis 3.15, the consequences of the fall are there. But we also see that the ultimate seed of the woman will crush the seed of the serpent. So we have a promise of salvation at Genesis 3.15. We don't know who that seed of the woman's going to be, but we know that there's going to be someone from the seed of the woman that's going to come in and save the world. Genesis 12, 2 to 3. We narrow down, we narrow down all of humanity to get to Abraham and his family. And it becomes very apparent straight in Genesis 12 that God is going to move salvation through Abraham and all of his descendants. And what's interesting there is that what we see is those who curse Israel will be cursed and those who bless Israel will be blessed. And in Abraham and in Abraham's seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That is not universalism. It's just saying that there's going to be an opportunity for salvation. Right? There's going to be a blessing in the sense that Jesus Christ comes through that family and he will, in, by extension, bless all the nations. Okay? Genesis 49, 9 to 12. Who's going to be that ultimate seed of the woman who will come in and save the world? Who's going to be the one who fights against the, the seed of the serpent? It's the king, the king that comes through the line of Judah. So you see that we're narrowing down from Adam and Eve through, uh, through the line of Seth because Cain is bad and Abel is dead, right? So through the line of Seth and then get to Abraham and then we're going down all the way to Isaac, Jacob, and then now, of all of Jacob's sons, Judah. So Judah's going to be the one that, that the king comes through. And the king, and that's going to be the king through whom God will reign. And he comes from Judah. De Deuteronomy 27 to 30. 
Those are, that, those are the <clears throat> chapters that cover the Mosaic Covenant. And it was given to set the trajectory of the nations of Israel. In Deuteronomy 27, you have curse, Deuteron- um, curses for disobeying God. Deuteronomy 28, you have the blessings that come if you obey God. And then Deuteronomy 29 covers what, the ratification of the covenant. And Deuteronomy 30 talks a little bit more about that. Now, what we see here is that the nation of Israel, they know what sin is. They know what it is, but they also know how to be made right before God, even if it is a temporary covering of their sins. Now, an earlier stipulation in Deuteronomy 17 prepares the way for what a godly king will look like and what he should do as he submits to God the king. 2 Samuel 7, God's choice of king. Who will be the ultimate seed? Of the woman and ultimately bring about the complete fulfillment of Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. Who's that gonna be? It's gonna come through David. The first king of Israel was who? Saul. What tribe was he from? So is that the right tribe according to Genesis 49? No. Sorry, I don't mean to be condescending. <clears throat> Not the right tribe. So you have to get to the right tribe. You get to Judah and it's David. And then in 2 Samuel 7, what you have is God saying, David, I choose you. Okay, sorry. I didn't mean to sound like Pokemon. But I chose you, right? And I'm going to establish your throne forever. I'm going to establish your throne forever. And when your sons disobey, I will discipline them. But there will be one who will reign forever, and there will be no end to his kingdom. What does that sound like? Isaiah. That's not in your list. But it sounds like Isaiah, right? It sounds like Isaiah 9. And then, you know, Isaiah 9, Isaiah 53. <clears throat> the ultimate king will reign forever and his kingdom will be established forever. Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 37, New Covenant. Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel, what we see is that the Davidic kings, they've come, they've gone, they failed. Right? God has disciplined the Davidic kings just like he promised in 2 Samuel 7. And so as he does so, he kicks them out, he brings them down. Yeah, he says, I'm not going to abandon them. I'm going to restore them. And as I do that, as I restore them, or when I restore them, I will also, in my people, give, I'll give my people a new heart so that they will actually obey the law like they always should have. This is what God is doing. He's slowly revealing what his plan is. And how do we get our, that heart of flesh? to obey the law, to have that law put in our hearts so that we can be the people that we're always supposed to be, the Gospels, right? the revelation of Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate king of David. He fulfills 2 Samuel 7. He fulfills Isaiah 53. He fills a, fulfills a whole bunch of different passages. Right? Jesus born. He lived that perfect life that we were not able to live. He fulfilled the Mosaic covenant, thus fulfilling all the law. Right? And then when he dies and then he rises from the dead, he provides salvation for the whole world. And then you get the aspect of um, there, and if he, if he um, <clears throat> sorry, if he is able to save everyone in the whole world, what is that? World, Genesis 12, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. You see? It's progressive. It's all connected. Every, you pull on one thread, and another thread comes, and another part of the thread comes, and another part of the thread comes. What we're saying is that every single aspect of the scriptures are interconnected. God, 
purposefully, progressively revealed his plan. And he leaves all, and he makes it apparent to all that every single aspect of the scriptures are tied together. Okay, and that's why I, that's why we, we say that it has to be literal, historical, grammatical. That if you try and put Christ, if you try and read Christ back into a passage where he does not belong, you actually interrupt the thread. Okay, now Revelation, Revelation, all of the conditions in all of God's promises, okay, all those little aspects, all those little details in those promises that God has made, they are finally fulfilled and Christ reigns. They're finally fulfilled and Christ reigns. He establishes his reign on earth. Heaven comes down. God's people are with him for eternity. And there are other details that will come later in terms of what we will do in eternity, but those specifics are still to come. But there are, and you know, there are other passages that we can look at. But you get the point. As history progresses, God reveals another portion of his plan for us so that the foundation laid previously is built upon. Okay? It's built upon that previous foundation. And so what we understand when it comes to uh, God progressively revealing his plan is that God will never do less or contrary to the original meaning of the OT author that he inspired. Okay? He will never do less or anything contrary to the original meaning of the Old Testament author that he inspired. The meaning of the Old Testament passages is anchored in the Old Testament. The New Testament does not interpret, reinterpret, transcend the meaning of the Old Testament. And so what that means, brothers and sisters, is if we believe that the New Testament authors were misusing the Old Testament or re- um, reinterpreting the meaning of the Old Testament, repurposing them for their own use, what that means is that we actually didn't work hard enough to understand how they are using that passage in context. Okay? We didn't do enough work. And if you're reading someone else's, if you're reading someone else's work and they say, oh, it's just fulfilled in Christ, don't worry about it, they didn't do enough work. I'm not trying to be prideful, but what I'm saying is that everything is in context. You have to understand that. If, that. if the Bible is the word of God, if he cannot contradict himself, and if the literal, historical, grammatical method of interpretation is locked into how the scriptures are understood, if that's how the prophets understood each other, if that's how Jesus understood the prophets, and if that's how the apostles understood Jesus and the prophets, then you and I have no right to put a different interpretation in there. We have to have the same hermeneutic, the same understanding of how to understand the scriptures as the prophets, Jesus, and the apostles. That sounds like a lot of hard work. It is. But what I'm saying to you is that if it sounds weird, you need to figure out how it's in context. I have an example for you, but we are running out of time. Um, oh, should I put you on a rabbit trail? Okay, make note of this. Matthew 2, 15... Matthew 2.15 and his use of Hosea 11.1. And that's that. Moving on. <laughs> You'll have to come back for that later. Okay, moving on. Second main belief is that typology in Scripture does exist, but national Israel is not a type that is superseded by the church. That is a bunch of nerd language. Here's what it means. A type according to biblical studies, is a figure or example of something to come. Or a, for instance, it's a, sh a foreshadow. 
right? So we could say rightly that David is a type of Christ, right? He's in the line of Judah. He is king. And Jesus is also in the line of Judah, and he is king. So in that sense, David is a type, an example of Christ ultimately. Now, one of the primary differences between those who are covenantal in their understanding of God's salvation plan and those who are dispensational is the identity of God's people. Those who are covenantal will say that there's only one people of God. Those who are dispensational will agree, but they'll say that within that one people of God, there is still a place for ethnic Israel. People who are covenantal will tend to say that um, that Israel is a type that foreshadowed the church. And once the church comes, Israel is not important anymore. Right? They're superseded by the church. And so what we believe as a church is that there is no supersession. Okay? Um, It doesn't matter what verb you use, right? Superseded, replaced, fulfilled in Jesus. Not every type found in the Old Testament is transcended by another in the New Testament. National Israel will still have their place. That leads us to our third main belief. Israel and the church, though part of the same family of God, are distinct. The church cannot be identified as the new or true Israel. A few weeks ago, we looked at the identity of the church, Matthew 16, right? What God will do or what Jesus will do. He said that he's going to build his church off of the foundation of the revelation of himself as Messiah through the teaching of the apostles. In just a few chapters over, right? So he said, I'm going to build my church. Just a few chapters over in Matthew 19, 28, Jesus tells the future apostles that they will receive a reward. They'll sit upon 12 thrones, judging or ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel. Does Jesus know the word for church? Yes, he does. He just used it in Matthew 16. But he uses Israel here distinctly in Matthew 19. Acts 1.6, when the apostles asked the resurrected Jesus a question about the kingdom, he, they say, Lord, at what time are you going to establish the kingdom for, uh, to Israel? To Israel, not to the church. They know the word for church. They understand the word for church, but they ask, at what time will you restore the kingdom to Israel? Romans 11, that's, the very, like, that's a, Paul's famous passage in his defense for a future for Israel. Israel's rejection is only temporary. Okay? The blessings that we as a church experience are a result of being grafted into God's people. Therefore, he says, Gentiles, us by extension, should not be arrogant towards Israel. So that we see within the scriptures themselves, that there is a distinction. There is a place for national believing Israel within the people of God. So where there is distinction, we honor the distinction and cannot insist that the church supersedes the nation of Israel as the people of God. Related to that, number four, there is both spiritual unity in salvation between Jews and Gentiles, while at the same time having a future role for Israel as a nation. I'm going to include number five, too. Okay, there are multiple senses of the seed of Abraham. Thus, the church's identification as seed of Abraham does not cancel God's promise to the believing Jewish seed of Abraham. <clears throat> number four, 
says that there is a unity between Jew and Gentile. Okay, Ephesians 2, 11 to 22 says that Christ broke down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile so that there is one new humanity. We all agree about this. Okay, There is one new humanity. And it, this passage has been used as the defense for saying that there's nothing distinct for national Israel. There's only one people of God. No, it's not Jew and Gentile. It's just one people of God, or one new humanity. But, that, <clears throat> sorry, but this is not what God has said. When you look at the breadth of Scripture, in Galatians 3, 27 to 28, Paul says that we have been baptized into Christ, and that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, if you look at that, it sounds like Ephesians 2. But, and, and you know what, people have also used this, <clears throat> this, uh, this passage to argue that there is no such thing as gender anymore, right? Because it says here clearly in the text, there is no such thing as male and female. And yet, I'm a boy, some of you are girls, and some of you are also boys, yes? There is, a, there is still a legitimate distinction. We have, not, we have not gone into chaos when it comes to what a boy is and what a girl is, even if our world has. Paul is not redefining physical reality here. Right? He's not redefining physical reality here in Galatians. Instead, when you look at the context, Paul is explaining the spiritual realities that are in play since salvation is by grace through faith. So spiritually speaking, there are no distinctions within the body of Christ. The one who is Jewish does not stand before God higher than his Gentile brother because of racial superiority. They are spiritually the same before God, even though they are different ethnicities. Male and female, even though they are different in function and role, they stand before God equal as spiritual equals. Okay? Even though they have different function and role, they stand before God spiritually equal. That's what Paul is saying about us being one in Christ. So when he says there's no distinction, what he's saying is we stand, because of the spiritual realities, as one, as the same before God, even if we have different functions. So going back to Ephesians 2, going back to Ephesians 2, we're not talking about a difference. Uh, we're, we're, sorry, um, we're not talking about no distinction, but we're talking about this um, and, and kind of like a blending of all peoples and all ethnicities into one strange, I don't know, albino, um, uh, yeah, humanity. But we're, there is a distinction even though we're all one. Right? There are still distinctions even though we are one. Um, number five, going back to Galatians um, <clears throat> Going back to Galatians 3, when you continue on, you look at verse 29, Paul says that all who are in Christ are Abraham's descendants. This makes it seem as if we are now Israel. Yes? Does it? It makes it seem that way. But if you look at the grammar, look at the grammar, you'll see that he defines how we are descendants of Abraham by clarifying, by explaining, right, that's what that comma is there for, that we are descendants of Abraham according to, or that we're heirs according to the promise. That explanatory phrase, that explanatory phrase that says heirs according to the promise is super important. Okay? It's not saying that we are heirs according to ethnicity. We are heirs in the sense that we are spiritual descendants of Abraham. We're children of the promise. 
We are not, therefore, the new Israel. We are not the physical descendants of Abraham. We are not ethnic Jews. None of you would, would argue that you are ethnic Jews unless you are an ethnic Jew. And also, if you take a larger view to this, okay, you look to, take a larger view to this, particularly Genesis 15, there's a reaffirmation of God's promise in Genesis 12. When you look at the end of the, prom, the unconditional, the unilateral covenant that God makes with Israel, he talks about land. He talks about a land promise. He tells them that their territory is going to be huge. And he puts some geographical markers there. Okay, that is not for us. That is for national Israel. Now you have to figure out what you're going to do with that land promise if you're going to try and take these, these promises on yourself. Because if God, okay, this goes back to the revelation of and the progression of Scripture. If God is going to be faithful to fulfill every single aspect of his promises, and he promises it to a particular people, he cannot be faithful to his word if he gives it to somebody else. Right? And in Romans 11, Paul sets the paradigm, and he says that we are grafted into Israel so we can share in that land promise, but that's not ours. Yeah? It's kind of like, um, it's kind of like, I bought a PlayStation 4. That is mine. My brother can share that PlayStation 4 with me, but he cannot rightly say that that is his. When I get married, it is going with me. <laughs> right? So this is an imperfect example. But basically, basically, right, that land promise is Israel's. We share in it, but that is not rightly ours in the sense that it's only for us and not Israel. Yes? Does that make sense? Okay. So even though there is a unity between Jew and Gentile, that unity does not mean sameness. Okay? It doesn't mean sameness. There are still distinctions. And also, think about it this way. It's not like when we get to heaven, we're going to cease to be our ethnicity because we are one people of God. That's actually racist. Think about that. That is racist to say that we're going to be one ethnicity to say that your ethnic distinction doesn't matter before God. That is wrong-minded. And I'm not trying to jump on the woke train or the social justice movement in that sense. But what I'm trying to say to you is that God created us as different ethnicities, different genders for a purpose. We all together represent him. We all together are made in the image of God. So therefore, the distinctions that we have, even though we're equal... Doesn't mean that, uh, or um, it doesn't nullify unity. Okay, it doesn't nullify unity, and it doesn't mean sameness. Okay, in the resurrection, I expect to be in a redeemed, ethnically Chinese body. I'll just be sinless. That'll be the only difference. Okay, I expect to be ethnically Chinese. In the resurrection, if I'm not ethnically Chinese, I'm going to be like, huh? What happened? <laughs> I don't expect to be Israeli. I don't expect to be anything else. Okay, I expect to be ethnically Chinese. Okay, uh, sorry, I'm taking a long time. Um, this leads us to number six. The nation of Israel will be saved and restored with a unique identity and function in a future millennial kingdom upon the earth. Dispensationalists believe that God can and will save the entire nation of Israel and that they're going to have a unique role among God's people. We kind of talked about that uniqueness already, so I'm not going to 
really look at that. Some will contend that there is going to be a salvation for a majority of the Jews, but just not all of them. It's not national Israel. Um, now, Now, I understand why there's pushback on that. Because we're saying, well, salvation is by, fi- by grace through faith. Each person has to be saved. So if God just saves the entire nation without each person believing upon him, that is not right. Would you agree with that? Yes. And so the question that I pose to you is, can God turn the hearts of an entire nation back to himself? Can he do that? Yes, he can. Right? And so that is possible. He can do it. And what we see in the scriptures is that he will do it. And so because of that, that's why we would say there is a future for national Israel. He will redeem national Israel. And honestly, if we don't believe that God can turn the entire hearts of a nation back, on him, back towards him, what do we make of Jonah? Right? What do we make of Jonah? Granted, after that generation died, after that generation of Ninevites died, they stopped repenting and therefore they died. Uh, or they, they sinned, and therefore they got wiped out in Nahum, okay? That resulting generation did not repent, but God did spare the entire city, the entire nation of Nineveh the first time. He turned all of their hearts back to him, which is why Jonah was mad. Sorry, Pastor Ray, I'm not trying to steal your thunder. Um, but when we talk about that, that's what we have to consider. God can and will turn the hearts of his people back to himself. And also, you know, if... I don't know if you guys are the pray for revival in this country kind of people. I don't really do it, I'll be honest. But if you are that, that's what you're praying for, right? When you're praying for revival for this nation, you are praying for the hearts of the nation, not just a good majority of the people, but the nation to turn to the Lord. Why? Because you love them and you want them to know who God is. You want them to experience the saving power of, of who God is. So it is possible. Now, What if we argue that there are no nations in heaven? Well, regarding the concept of nations still existing in heaven, it is possible. Therefore, national Israel can be a nation and can have function in the new heaven and new earth. Turn with me to Revelation 21. Okay, it's a chapter about the new heaven and the new earth. Um, And in this new earth, there's going to be a new Jerusalem. And in that new Jerusalem, what we see, we're going to look at verse 22. Sorry, I am going to try and wrap up as quickly as possible. Okay. Um, okay, verse 22 says this. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of the Lord has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be... Uh, for there will be no night there. Its gates will never be closed. And they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And this is why I asked that question earlier. Is heaven a spiritual place or is it a physical reality? What we see here, that it is a physical reality. And that's mind-blowing. But... What we see at the, beginning, uh, at the beginning of Revelation 21 is that we are in a new heaven and a new earth because the old heaven and the old earth have passed away. They've passed away. So it's similar, but it's new. Right? It's similar, 
but it's new. It's a physical place. That's why God dwells in the city among his people. It's a physical place. And that's why those land promises back in Genesis 12, and you're harping, and you're wondering why I'm harping on land promises. It's not because I want to be a landowner. I'm just saying that Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 clearly state that there has to be a land for God's people. And if God's going to be faithful to his promise, he needs to give them that land to the fullest extent. It can't just be a part of the borders. It has to be to the entire borders that he outlined in Genesis 15. If he doesn't give them the entire land according to those parameters, he's not faithful. The promise hasn't been fulfilled. It's, well, actually, it's not necessarily that he hasn't been faithful, but the promise hasn't been completely fulfilled, and they still have to wait, okay? Um, okay. So what we see in Revelation is that God still has a plan and function for peoples of all nations. There will be city walls in the New Jerusalem. People go in and out, and that means that there are different nations. There are different roles for the nations. They're all going to come, and they're going to worship God together. Now, as you can see in our discussion of the six main beliefs in dispensationalism, hermeneutics plays a huge role as we try and understand what God's word reveals about his plans for the identity of, God, of the people of God and what will happen in the end times for the people of God. But what do we do with this? How does this come into play? Well, we're going to explore that as we look at the impact of dispensationalism on the church, on church life. Um, or on, sorry, on the Christian life. Uh, firstly, an understanding of dispensationalism reaffirms how we are supposed to understand the scriptures. Since everything within dispensationalism hangs on God's progressive revelation, it hangs on literal grammatical historical revelation, then we are reminded that the details of scripture matter. Every single little detail matters. Okay, our whole outlook on the intersection between life and theology needs to be shaped by the scriptures. When you read your Bibles, don't read it just to get information. Okay, I was talking to, to someone recently, and they were telling me that their devotions were great. And I said, oh, really? Okay, cool. Tell me what you're learning. And he just gave me a summary of what he was learning. And I asked him, okay, good. What do you think God wants you to do with that? He just stared at me. That is not how you are supposed to read your Bibles. Reading your Bibles just for facts, it can be helpful, but if you don't know what you're supposed to do with it, that doesn't do you an ounce of good. Can you really say that you were devotional in that time when you don't even know what God wants you to do with his word? Okay, you need to know it. You need to know the details, and you need to think bigger than just, oh, that's nice, God did this. Right, but you need to figure out, what does God want me to do with what I see in this text? How does he want me to respond? How does he want me to think bigger about him? And, you know, admittedly, that is hard. Okay, I don't, I, I struggle to do this daily. Okay, I don't always consider how my life plays a part in God's kingdom. But as we read our Bibles, as we see how God wants for us to respond to the circumstances in our lives, to the mindset that we ought to have as we interact with other people, whether they're believers or unbelievers, we realize that the scriptures are always inherently practical. And if they're inherently practical, that means we need to apply them, that we cannot just know them. Okay, God doesn't care if you can, if you can beat Bible trivia. He doesn't care if you know, if you can beat Bible apples to apples. Okay, he doesn't care if you can do that. He wants your heart. He always wants your heart. That's what he's always after. And he wants to know, he, he wants a relationship with you, okay? Now, consider this. 
as you think about that hermeneutical core of dispensationalism. Think about that incredible faithfulness of God. And that's, you know, that's partially why I like lost it when we were singing Hail to the King. Because you think about the incredible faithfulness of God. Think about that. Israel right now has been temporarily rejected by God because of their rejection of Jesus as Messiah. And God allowed that. He allowed that so that he could fulfill Genesis 12, 3, so that all the nations could be blessed through Abraham's family. And you think about Israel, right? You, re- you read Judges and you're just like, Israel, you're so stupid. Sin, repent, okay, right. uh, peace, and then sin, judgment, ow, God save us, and then repent, and then all over again, right? And we're just like, Israel, why are you so dumb? That's you and me. Right? That's you and me. We are in sin cycles constantly, so we cannot judge Israel for that. But think about that. Israel, because of their sin cycles, got judgment, and their ultimate, their ultimate sin, the worst sin that they've ever done, is the rejection of their own king. The murder of their own king, Jesus. And yet, God is still faithful to the promise. You think about that. Okay, if, you made it, if you had a relationship with someone, and they killed your child, some of you don't have children, but think about it. Put yourself in those shoes, okay? They killed your child, but they were your best friends. Would you still be faithful to them? That'd be really hard. That would be impossible. But God is faithful to his promises. You think about that. God is still faithful. He will still bring about the fulfillment, the full fulfillment of every single one of his promises to his people because he loves them. And it's not because they were strong. It's not because they were the greatest of all the nations. It's because he set his love on them. He chose to love them. And because of that, he stays faithful to them no matter what they do, even when they killed his son. And that faithfulness means that those details None of of those details fall through. None of those promises fall through. They aren't explained away as being fulfilled in Christ, but they are fulfilled. And if they're not fulfilled yet, they will be fulfilled. That is cool. That is incredible. God intends to stay faithful to every single word that he has ever said to his people. What did Jesus say about God's word? That That not one iota or jot or tittle will pass away. He will be faithful to his word. The word of God stands forever, and God will be faithful to his promise forever. Now, back out. Now, and look at your life and the promises of God that you know are yours. You know that 1 John 1, 9 says that if you are faithful to confess your sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive you your sins. Right? And what that means is that, therefore, no matter how dirty you feel, no matter how long you run from God... As long as you return to him and you say the same thing that he says about your sin, he will be faithful and righteous to forgive you of your sin. You know that you are eternally secure no matter how bad your sin is, no matter what you've been doing, because you've been forgiven by the blood of the lamb. When the darkness closes in, you are in the midst of your hardest trial, the nastiest trial in your life you know that God will be faithfully with you and that he will strengthen you 
through that trial because he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. He does not abandon you. Right? He even says, he even says in 1 Peter 5, cast all your anxieties upon me because I care for you. Yeah? And so, knowing the faithfulness of God, knowing how he's going to be with you, how he's going to strengthen you, how he's going to encourage you, means that even if you feel like you cannot even stand any longer, he is still going to be faithful. He's still going to lift you up. He's still going to be with you, and you will get through that trial. That is his faithfulness to you. That is his loving kindness to you. He will not abandon you. He will not fail to keep every word to you. His faithfulness to every single word found in the scriptures remind you that you can trust in him and that he is not going to let you go. Therefore, don't be content with a small view of God. Okay? We tend to have a very small view of God. I challenge you and I exhort you, I encourage you, think bigger. Think bigger so that you can see him for who he is, not who you think he is. Okay? I'll say that again. Think bigger so that you can see him for who he is, not who you think he is. Secondly, sorry. Secondly, an understanding of dispensationalism helps you understand the identity and purpose of the people of God, of the church in particular. We are here to proclaim to the world the power that is found in Jesus' name. He can save everyone who believes in him and repents of their sin. So we have to be faithful to share the gospel with those whom God has put in our lives. I understand that there is a comfort and there is a sense of officialness when we make evangelism an official part of our ministry life here in the church. But you do not need the pastors or elders to supervise an official evangelism ministry to SF State, USF, UCSF, UOP, your workplace, or anywhere in the city. I know you would prefer that and you would like that, but you don't need it. If we care about what God cares about, if we're going to prioritize what he wants us to prioritize, share, then we are to share the gospel with the people who are around us because that's what God cares about. That's what he wants us to do. And so if no one's going to go with you, fine, go do it. Go do it. You would rather be faithful to God and what he wants of you than to be like, well, God, I would have done it, but Tony didn't want to come with me. So sorry, Tones. Um, right? Just be faithful to God. Don't worry about anybody else. God is not asking for you to stand on a milk crate, get a megaphone, and start yelling at people who come across the, your street corner. He is asking for you to be faithful, to care about the people who have been made in his image that he's brought into your life. These are the ones who have not repented of their sins. And for the ones who have, then you're to encourage them and build them up. Right? And this includes, by the way, his people, Israel. Yes, we are to have a concern for our people here in America, for the orphan, for the refugee, for those who are in the nations who have not heard the gospel, but we are also supposed to have a concern for God's people, Israel. He did not forget them, neither can we. Okay, He did not forget them, neither can we. That's the point of Romans 11, yeah? We cannot be arrogant toward Israel because God has allowed us to share in their promises as we've been grafted into them. Now, I am not saying that we have to be pro-Israel in our politics in everything because the current nation of Israel is still sinful. Right? They, are, they are capable of making mistakes. But we should have a concern for their salvation just like we should have a concern for the salvation of the rest of the nations as well. 
Third, an understanding of the scope of dispensationalism should cause you to be gracious and humble towards those who may have differing views on how God works or is working through, um, through human history. We've said this before, but I'm going to harp on it again, okay? We have to be gracious. We have to be humble. Dispensationalism deals primarily with the doctrine of the church and end times. So it actually does not lead to a particular view of how salvation is accomplished. It doesn't make someone a Calvinist. It doesn't make someone an Armenian. Right? Dispensationalism also doesn't determine whether you believe that the rapture occurs before, after, or even at all. Okay? Although here at SFBC, we believe that the rapture occurs before the tribulation. And also, here's another thing. All dispensationalists are premillennialists, but not all premillennialists are dispensationalists. And if you don't know what that is, well, we can talk about that later. Okay? There are a lot of differences that we can have in our theology, but that should not cause us to be unfair or uncharitable to those who are orthodox but have different views than we do. Okay? And if I've done that and you hold a different view tonight, uh, here tonight, and I've done that by accident, I didn't mean to be uncharitable to you. I'm so sorry. These believers who have different views than we do are not our enemies. They are our family, okay? So be humble and gracious and seek to understand their position while at the same time striving to be a Berean when it comes to studying the scriptures and theology. Okay, tonight, that was all just an introduction. I went an hour and a half. We studied enough of it to see how dispensationalism, it touches a lot of different areas. The way that we think about God. How we go about fulfilling, how we go about thinking about his fulfillment of his promises. And all these things, like, they're active in our lives. We, we don't think about them, but they actually intersect with our lives. Okay, so while a dispensationalist approach to the scriptures is not necessary to join SFBC as a member, the implications of dispensationalism will continue to come out in our teaching. Right? It colors the way that this church understands theology. It understands the way that God reveals the salvation plan slowly and progressively through human history. And for that reason, the, we as a church, we emphasize the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. And we pay a lot of attention to that. And we pay a lot of attention to hermeneutics. Right? And because Christ can come back at any time to make all things right, to bring about the final literal fulfillment of all of God's promises, we have we can have a biblical hope that eventually brings us peace and contentment even if we are tempted to be anxious. Thank you for your attention. I am sorry that I went so long. Um, you do have application questions on your notes, but um, yeah, if we don't have time for that. That's okay, too. Um, let's, let's pray. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for for you and for the study of dispensationalism. And uh, Lord, we pray that, um, that as we come to a clearer understanding of what you are doing, that we would have a greater love and reverence for you. Father, I pray that um, you would bring, bring great glory and honor as we consider the impact that these truths have on our lives. Help us to care about what you care about. To be really interested, regardless of whether we hold a dispensationalism or not, to really care about what you care about. To be all about understanding what you revealed in the scriptures. And may you make your truth known to us. We pray that you would protect us 
uh, especially those of us who are more zealous for the truth, protect us from being ungracious and uncharitable to those who hold different uh, viewpoints. And we pray that, Lord, you would just glorify yourself as we consider the greater things of you. Uh, thank you so much for this time. It's your son's name we pray. Amen.